WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. On the show today, we take a deep dive into the platforms and policies of the new Speaker of the House, Louisiana's Mike Johnson. And after the threat of closing in its 78th season, we hear how Theater Baton Rouge is hanging on with one full-time staff member, a dedicated board, and a slew of community volunteers. But first, a changing climate is making some places too dangerous to live in. This is especially true along the Gulf Coast. In the final part of our series, Place Erased, we go to an area of coastal Mississippi that seems to have been wiped off the map. But as the Gulf States Newsroom's Danny MacArthur reports, it's still alive and well for some in the community. Claremont Harbor, Mississippi is right on the coast. That means when hurricanes come, it's taking the damage head on. The community has been obliterated by hurricanes enough times that on paper, it looks like a ghost town. A local historian wrote about its potential death in 2019. The County Historical Society says it no longer exists. But tell that to the crowd at Harold and Lillian's. You know we got reporters over here. I'm going to turn this but hey, real people. <laughs> On this Tuesday morning, regulars like Michelle Eaches are already keeping each other company. No matter how many storms come, this nearly 80-year-old dive bar builds back. The first places that open are the bars and the churches. Because your whole life is torn apart. You need to pray and you need a drink. Bottom line. (laughs) That second voice is bartender Melissa Owens. My reporting partner, Drew Hawkins, asked her... Do you think Claremont Harbor will ever fade away? Absolutely not. No way. It's generations of... We're all related. So it's all generations of families here. Some people might think Claremont Harbor is is flourishing, but I don't. Florence Jordan grew up here. That means she's lived through a lot of storms, like Hurricane Camille in 1969. She was just 17 when her family tried to ride that one out. They're trying to put... Uh, rags and stuff, towels and stuff at the door to keep the water out, and it's just cu- coming in. She remembers the moment when the 24-foot storm surge found its way inside their home. Uh, you know, it, I get upset when I start talking about it. Her family ran upstairs. So we go back into the attic, and we're sitting there, and we're waiting, and we're praying, and then the, 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 um, the eye calms. I mean, we're just very calm, and... But we just stayed there and we waited all night long until morning came. Camille killed hundreds of people in Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana. And it did a lot of damage. After that storm, Jordan and her family decided to leave Claremont Harbor and moved a few miles away. But that's just one of the many storms that have eroded the spirit and structure of the coastal town over time. Each successive storm makes it harder and harder for the community to bounce back. When Hurricane Katrina blew through in 2005, it took a direct hit. Katrina came along and just totally destroyed my home, my brand new home. That's Jimmy McGuire. He's a lawyer who's trying to retire. In 2005, he had just finished building his dream home here. And I still hadn't hung things up on the wall and and, um, it was just a tragedy. He came back to staggering destruction. Nothing but concrete slabs and rubble. The Gulf of Mexico was filled with cars, trees, uh, homes, 
Many in the community say it felt like everyone else forgot about Claremont Harbor after Katrina. They have stories of pulling bodies out on their own and building makeshift shelters. Most of the attention went to bigger areas, like New Orleans, while small towns like theirs took care of themselves. Rebuild was slow. The beach road out there took five years, I believe at least five years to rebuild a road. While the chaos of hurricane season caused many to leave, McGuire chose to stay, eventually building the modular home he lives in now. The evening I can hear the water, the birds uh, singing and doing what they're doing. I see the blue herons and the egrets flying over in the afternoon going to their nest. And uh, it's just such a, a beautiful place to live. Today, if you drive through the area, you'll see that every house is on stilts. They have to be in order to deal with future hurricanes. Because it, it's always been a wonderful place. That's Lolly Cole, who moved here after Katrina. Good morning, everyone. She's volunteering at the Ground Zero Museum in nearby Waveland. It's dedicated to remembering Hurricane Katrina and the history of this whole county. She remembers coming to her family's camp as a little girl, walking down the long wooden pier into the waist-deep water. And we crabbed and we fished off the seawall. So it's, I mean, it's been a happy place. And then I met my husband and he had a blind date and he came to see me in Claremont Harbor. And here we are. <laughs> Claremont Harbor is unincorporated, meaning that if you move here, your address probably says Bay St. Louis. And while that area is expanding, Claremont Harbor residents worry newcomers don't understand the town's history, at least not in a way that will keep it alive. I mean, there, there are people that just don't even know anything about Claremont Harbor that, that are still here. She always tries to share bits of that history, like the fact the town once had two grocery stores. And they both basically sold the same thing, but everybody that went to Garcia's didn't go to Ladner's, and everybody that went to Ladner's didn't go to Garcia's. It was kind of funny. There was a snowball stand, and of course, Harold and Lillian's, just one street away from where Cole now lives. I've been known to dance on the porch listening to the music from <laughs> from, uh, from Harold and Lillian. <laughs> this bar is the epitome of cheers. To bartender Owens, Claremont Harbor is far from a ghost town. It has families whose legacies go back to the town's founding. Even today, it still has a 4th of July parade. We have a better parade than New Orleans does, I'm just saying. Like, we have our own parade every year and it's epic. More hurricanes will surely come, but Owen says weathering the storm together is a key part of Claremont Harbor's identity. And just because a place is no longer on the map doesn't mean it's abandoned. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Danny McArthur. This is the final installment in a new series from the Gulf States Newsroom called Place Erased. Find all the stories on WWNL or WRKF.org. If you didn't know the name Mike Johnson a few weeks ago, chances are you do now. The Louisiana representative from Shreveport was recently elected Speaker of the House after a 22-day deadlock that saw multiple candidates try and fail to drum up enough support for the position. And while we wait and see what Johnson might do as Speaker, we wanted to take a moment to look back at his history, platform, and beliefs, both professionally and personally. The Times-Picayune, the advocate's Mark Ballard, has been reporting on Johnson for roughly 20 years, and he joins us now from D.C. Mark, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me on. 
Can you start just by telling us what we know about how and why Johnson first got into politics? What are some of his main beliefs and platforms? Well, he started uh, as as far as I know that he he may have been involved in this earlier, but in law school, while he was still in that law school at LSU, he uh, kind of joined up with uh, uh, Gene Mills and helping to f- form the Family uh, Forum, which, uh, as you know, the Louisiana Family Forum is a uh, Baton Rouge based and it's a very powerful uh, group of uh, of pastors and churches uh, that uh, believe that they should have an impact on governing from a biblical perspective. And uh, then he went on and worked after graduating law school, he went and worked for a a firm that was out of Phoenix that handled an awful lot of uh, religious-based lawsuits. And these were companies that were trying to uh, uh, overcome government regulations based on their religious practices and beliefs. And then uh, after a while, I guess in 2015, he became a a Louisiana state legislator for one term and then was elected to uh, Congress when John Fleming decided he was going to run for U.S. Senate. And he's been up here for, I guess, four terms now, if I haven't lost count. Right. Well, what do we know about his district in Shreveport? What's it like there demographically? And how well liked is he among his constituents? Well, I have to say that uh, in 2022, he had no opponent sign up to run against him. So that may be an indicator. Uh, Basically, it's in northwest Louisiana. We say it's based in Shreveport because that's where most of the the Caddo Parish is where most of the uh, voters uh, come from. But it is a predominantly rural parish that has uh, two military bases. And uh, I guess the only other major industry that they have up there would be oil and gas exploration. And it's been, and that's been in Northwest Louisiana since Howard Hughes's time. And so 61% of of that uh, district voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020. Well, speaking of his beliefs, He's discussed his religion quite a bit in his politics, and some even label him as a creationist. What can you tell us about that and how that's impacted his political views? It's impacted his political views because he says that he uses the Bible to inform his uh, positions. He opposes abortion access. He uh, is against uh, uh, same-sex marriages. And he uh, is also opposes an enumerated rights for the LGBTQ community. We're speaking with Mark Ballard, reporter for the Times-Picayune, The Advocate, who has been reporting on the new Speaker of the House of Representatives, Mike Johnson, for roughly 20 years. Well, Johnson has made some comments that some are calling homophobic. What exactly has he said about his beliefs on LGBTQ plus rights? Yeah, he basically has made a lot of uh, uh, of inflammatory, I mean, some would call inflammatory comments uh, about gays and uh, that they basically came at a time when he was defending companies and laws that kind of restricted LGBTQ rights. What he's basic is the best of my understanding is, is that it, it uh, it's a, a Southern Baptist uh, kind of looking at uh, uh, those practices as as a, a sin and they believe in, you know, love the sin or hate the sin and that, you know, they're okay with uh, 
with you being gay as long as you're trying hard to uh, overcome it. And that's kind of where he stands on it, where they draw the line, uh, both he and, and the uh, in the church draw the line at uh, in expanding, it, that might not be the right word, but I mean, specifying perhaps uh, civil rights for the LGBTQ community uh, that would be in line with uh, racial or gender civil rights. Well, in 2020, Johnson voted against certifying that Joe Biden won the presidential election. He's also served on Trump's impeachment defense team and advocated for a continuing investigation that could lead to Biden's impeachment. So how might that impact his ability to work with the president? Has he made any comments on this? I found it interesting because, you know, he met with the president. They talked, you know, they're going to be buds. And uh, But at the same time, he came back from the White House, you know, saying, you know, that there is evidence. There's not really been evidence uncovered that, that, that would implicate a, a crime that was committed by the president. But there is a, a smoke, he says, uh, in the evidence that they have found. And that it is their duty as as uh, uh, Congress people who have uh, taken the oath of office to uh, uh, to ferret out that information. And that's certainly very powerful argument that it has a lot of support among the very conservative Republicans, the very same people who perpetrated the coup against the uh, the Kevin McCarthy. Well, before we go, we've seen that this House has no problem ousting a leader. So what do you think Johnson will have to do in order to hold on to this position? How exactly is he expected to govern this body? Well, yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, the McCarthy was ousted when he wanted to do a single continuing resolution so that the government would not shut down. And the conservatives refused to go along, including Mike Johnson, refused to go along with his idea. And so then he just turned and said, you know, well, I'll get help from the Democrats. And the fact that he got help from the Democrats is what caused the conservatives to uh, to rise up and, and throw him out. Now, they seem or many of the, the folks that did that are saying we're going to, you know, cut Johnson a some slack on this. And so he probably will have to do a continuing resolution in mid-November to continue government, not shut down into sometime into 2024, January, February, March, April in that, you know, depending on what they can get passed. So they're going to give him a, a pass on this, uh, you know, single continuing resolution. And, uh, I think when we will find out where the rubber will hit the road will be when that resolution starts to expire in January, February, March, April, whenever the date is that they set. And then he's going to find that the, the efforts that they have, which is all very good, to uh, you know do a, a full budget you know with 12 uh, different appropriations bills, has proven impossible for the last 20 years and is likely to prove impossible for the uh, for the near future. That will be when we see uh, when Mike Johnson has to choose between his overall job of uh, protecting American people, keeping government open and his job as a backbencher conservative, which is, you know, we're going to do this budget and we'll shut down government regardless. And that, I think, is where we'll find out. Yeah. Tough job. Mark Ballard is a reporter for the Times-Picayune The Advocate. He's been covering Mike Johnson for roughly 20 years. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me on.
From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Last month, Theater Baton Rouge announced that it was in danger of closing in its 78th season due to rising production costs and budget mismanagement. All but one member of the community theater staff was laid off. But its board launched a fundraiser aiming to raise $100,000 in 60 days in order to keep the lights on. Jennifer Fiducia serves on Theater Baton Rouge's advisory board. She joins us now to discuss the situation and how the community is rallying to save the beloved theater. Jennifer, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Alana. Can you start by telling us how Theater Baton Rouge ended up in this tenuous position with a $200,000 budget deficit? Yeah, I, I like to say it was a perfect storm. You know, between COVID and then after COVID, we had inflation and rising cost. I wish I could tell you our story is unique, but as I started going online and reading about other community theaters very similar to ours, our story was just being printed over and over again. Um, It's deeply personal. We love this theater and we want to see it thrive. So the fundraiser is part of what we're doing, but the other part is putting in measures to make sure we're not in this position again. Well, how did credit card debt contribute to the theater's budget deficit? Were those charges incurred by any particular person or any particular department? How did it happen? It was pretty much incurred by low funds. And so they were using the credit cards to um, cover operating costs and production costs. So quickly, you know, buying things, lumber, to build sets or costumes online, and it just got away from them. Well, now we know how the theater ended up in the red. So what Mm -hmm. can you tell us about the board's hopes and what they're looking to accomplish with the Light the Stage campaign? I'll tell you, it's um, if you had talked to me three weeks ago, you would have been talking to a different Jennifer. Mm. Um, At that time, it was just the board figuring out how bad everything was. And then we thought, you know what? why don't we just tell the community, let's be transparent and say what's going on. Um, There were some really smart people around me, but we're not, we don't have all the answers. And we knew if we opened it up to our community, answers would come. So um, we launched the campaign then. We're at $89,000 as of today. So people are definitely wanting to see us stay open, but it was so much more than raising the money. It was about finding the people that can help us actually run the theater again. You mentioned at the top that we had to lay off a lot of our staff. So we needed to find people who could help out in the box office. We needed to find people who can sew costumes. We needed to find people who can paint sets for us. And there were over 100 people that showed up for our town hall. And they lined up afterwards to say, where can I sign up? So that's been the biggest thing is seeing that it's not just a handful of people saving the theater, it's the whole community. What an incredible show of support. Well, I know that the board laid off almost everyone on staff once they realized the gravity of this deficit. Despite that, no shows have been canceled. So how is Theater Baton Rouge continuing to produce shows with the staff of just one person, Kevin Mayfield, the set builder? How, how is Kevin doing all this? Also, I would love to know a little more about him. Kevin is, well, he's a gem, and I'm not going to lie, he's exhausted. (laughs) He's working seven days a week right now. Um, 
but he's just putting one foot in front of the other and seeing what needs to get done day to day. And he puts out the all call when he needs help. Like he sent out an email today going, I need people to run spotlight. And he gave us the dates he needs people to run spotlight. And luckily we have all these people that want to help him. Um, Kevin's not new to the theater. He's been around for a long time. We'd like to see him stay with us a long time. Um, it is a part of him. His brother and sister got married on that stage. He met his wife uh, oh. at the theater. He was working backstage. She was the star of the show. So Kevin is very invested in us. And that explains a good bit of why he is truly giving us his blood, sweat and tears these days. Oh, my goodness. Where's the show about Kevin's life? We are speaking with Jennifer Fiducia, a member of Theater Baton Rouge's advisory board, about how the community theater company plans to avoid closure after the discovery of a deficit in its operating budget. While there has been discussion of changing Theater Baton Rouge's cost structure and community engagement methods, it does sound like the community is very engaged so far. So how do you plan to really lean into that and what are some of the changes you can make around cost structure? So before we realized what was happening, our operating expenses ran roughly 29000 and some change a month. So in the last nine weeks, some of the things we've been doing is renegotiating some of our contracts and realizing where we could cut back. So as of now, our monthly operating costs are $19,000. So we've already cut over $10,000 from our operating expenses. Um, we are putting in, and it's not finished being designed yet, but we're putting in a template that will automatically budget out a show for us. So we are being cautious in what we're hiring and what we can volunteer. So we're now, instead of hiring props mistresses, we're looking for people who can volunteer and help us do props and help us sew costumes. So that's another place where we're cutting back. Mm -hmm. But each show, and this is something we'll do for, from here on out, we'll have a little budget spreadsheet and you put in what we think the show can make. And then it's about 60% from that is what the production cost should be. And then it automatically will feed into the Excel form to let us know, all right, you know, you have $1,500 to build the set and off they go. Wow. And then we may have to get creative on how we do that. Yeah. Well, we've already discussed how much the community has really shown up to support this theater. What do you think that says about what this theater really means to everyone in Baton Rouge? It made me realize that everybody has a story that ties them to this theater, whether it's that you've just always gone and it's a family tradition to enjoy the shows that we put on every year or if it was a place where you found a place to belong when maybe you couldn't find somewhere else. Maybe you just love to perform and that's been a place. Maybe it's been a place that you can go and work crew backstage. But everybody that I've talked to, especially at the town hall, the line to talk was crazy because everybody wanted to tell me why it mattered to them and what gifts and talents they could bring. At the end of the night, it really did feel like it's a wonderful life. I just, I thought that was only in movies, but I got to see it live and in action. When everyone shows up for George Bailey to, to bail him out of the bank, it was like that at the theater. Yeah, it definitely felt that way and continues to feel that way. Jennifer Fiducia serves on the advisory board for Theater Baton Rouge. Thanks so much for joining me and good luck with the campaign. Alana, thank you. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. 
Thanks to our guests, reporter for The Times-Picayune, The Advocate, Mark Ballard, and advisory board member for Theatre Baton Rouge, Jennifer Fiducia. Our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell, and our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at rouses.com with additional support from the Sazerac House.